A mathematician makes plans to travel backwards in time, through a wormhole, to a parallel universe, when he can't even make it to Mars with the fastest rocket on hand today. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts, here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby, Bill Gates, whoever he may be. Legend. Probably. Probably, we think. Hi, Matt. Hi, Jamie. We're in sunny Metropolis Studios in West London. Famous for Jamie Franklin and Matthew Russell's podcasts. Occasionally, when we get together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's great things. when we get together. Matthew, how have you been? You look very well. You look less stressed than when I last saw you. Yeah, well, my car's working, Jamie. Oh, that helps. Yeah, it does help. We could even do fist bump. Watch. Listen. Oh, yes. That was our fists bumping. Nothing else. Don't, don't get many fist bumps on the show. No other flesh bumping no. around here. Anyway, we had a bit of a, a, a good conversation on Discord. They want to do uh, the odd live Discord show. Hell so we, yeah. So we're going to we're gonna have to get some technical things going to make that happen, Jamie. Once a month, I reckon. Probably some beer, knowing that lot. Oh, yeah. We could maybe have a beer thing. Beer ting. Beer ting. Matt. Oh, no, let's make it fine wines. Our Discord members are very mo- much more sophisticated than beers, Jamie. Matt, I, I quit a reggae band. It was, it was just, just one thing after, after another. another. <sighs> no, it's, you quit playing triangle in a reggae yeah, band. Yeah, I told it wrong. Kind of it's all in the... But, but Jamie... All in the delivery. Next week, what are we doing that's really cool? Oh, my God. So, <clears throat> 7th of November... Is that mm. right? Seven. It's going to be the same. Um, we are doing a live podcast for the second time in our in our history at the Space Store in Oxford. Yeah, to celebrate that auspicious number one five eight. If people can write in, why that's so special? Hell of a number. Hell Answers of a number. on a postcard, and it's going to be our Artemis special. Our Artemis special, because there was so much coming out of uh, the IAC this week. I thought, well, really, let's give you some time for that to all settle down, and we'll talk about Artemis and going back to the moon with whoever turns up to the space store. So come down to the space store. In come Oxford. down. Register for your ticket. Go and check out Matt. What's the space store website address for people who want to register? .co? Oh, I thought it was something like that. Yeah. Didn't want to say space it. Spacedore.co. Bringing space to Earth. Unlike the podcast, which is bringing the ace back into space. I will repeat that. It's space store, space, and then S-T-O-R-E dot C-O. So, yeah. That's come, all. So, come down. Join Jamie and I and take part in the fun we have no idea who our audience is going to be down there so we're going to listen even if you hate us (laughs) you might like the moon you might like talking about the moon come down have a chat join in we might even have a few experiments we may even do the whole thing in spacesuits oh yes oh yes actually that is going to be that is absolutely something we need to request (laughs) genius idea yes so jamie we've got a birthday we've got a birthday today whose is it it's a 66th birthday of Jan Davis. Ah, oh, she's a ledge. Ledge, 1953. Jan Davis, November the 1st, astronaut of, of the week. week. That was in, in stereo. It was. 
Jan Davis. Well, let's talk about her. Yeah. So she earned a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from, is it Auburn? Yeah, it is Sorry Auburn. if I'm pronouncing no, that wrong. Auburn, yeah. um, and a bachelor's degree in applied biology and biomechanics. She ain't no slouch. No. From the Georgia Institute of Technology and a master's and a doctorate in mechanical engineering from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. As a former astronaut on three space shuttle missions, uh, engineer, NASA executive, industry VP, Girl Scout troop leader, lest we forget. And the first quilter and ice skater in space. Okay, now we need to clarify this. When you say ice skater in space, do you mean that she used to do ice skating on Earth and she went to space? Or that she did ice skating in space? I doubt she did ice skating in space. I'm going with the first one. But with Artemis, I mean, you know how much ice is on the moon? Just saying. Well, maybe someone will become the first person to ice skate. It's a triple nuts. <laughs> maybe, but it won't. I doubt it'll be Jan Davis at the age of 66 traveling to the moon. But she's going to pay a part, in actual fact. She's actually involved with building SLS, her company. Genius. But we'll go through a little bit more. So she started work as a Texaco engineer. So when she left doing her degree, she became a Texaco engineer. Because at that time, hmm. that sort of in the sort of early 80s, there wasn't much going on in the American space industry. No. The shuttle hadn't started flying. And, and so there wasn't much call for astronauts. And if you wanted a high-paid job in engineering, then oil was, was, your, was, your, was your kind of place to go, particularly where she was. Yeah. But she was actually, I'll tell you what, she grew up in Huntsville. And that's, of course, the Apollo, that's like an, an Apollo town. It's mm. where the Apollo missions were built. And get this, she went to school with Werner von Braun's kids. What? Yeah, it's actually pretty cool, isn't it? That's mad. In 1986, she joined NASA and was part of the Structural Analysis Division. Now, bearing in mind 1987 was the Challenger disaster. Mm. So, obviously, she was part of the team that, that, that saw all that and must have been, like, immediately uh, put on trying to sort out what had happened. So, in 1987, she was actually looking at re-engineering the solid rocket boosters, the, the, one of the sort of uh, ways that the tank worked, uh, but not the bit that actually failed on the Challenger disaster, another part. So, so she was studying the, am I right in thinking, so she was studying the long-term strength of pressure vessels due to the viscoelastic characteristics of filament-wound composites. It's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah, she was working on her PhD when she'd been interviewed to join NASA, basically, mm. and, and she desperately wanted to become an astronaut. I think she interviewed in 84, but was eventually let into the astronaut uh, in the class of 87. Well, let me ask you this. Does she hold a patent? She does hold a patent, yes. I don't know what that's in, but I should imagine it's something to do with uh, filament-wound composites, perhaps. First person to answer that on our Discord channel yeah. gets a very what? witty emoji. Yeah, so what is the patent that Jan Davis holds? So, yes, so she's become an astronaut. She worked at Capcom for, for lots of shuttle missions, and then she gets her big break, 1992 STS-47 Endeavour, up 12th of September on the 50th Space Shuttle Mission. 50th Space wow. Shuttle Mission. 
Uh, and she went up with her husband at the time, Mark C. Lee, who was the payload commander. Has that happened before that? Did a, uh, any husband and wife go up pre-92? That's a good point. I think, they, I think there was. I think there was. I think there was uh, that instance of that before. And she was operating Space Lab and oh. the subsystems, doing lots of different experiments. And then STS-60, which is most famous for being the first of the near space flights. So it's the first time, I believe, a Russian cosmonaut has flown up to space on an American spacecraft. They'd uh, worked together before on the Apollo-Soyuz missions, mm. but this is the first time, I think, a Russian... Well, definitely the first time a Russian had been on the space shuttle. That Russian, by the way, STS-60, is, is a bit of a roll call of, of pretty cool people. Definitely. You've got Charles Bolden as the commander... You've got Jan Davis on her second space flight. You've got Franklin R. Chang Diaz up wow. there as well. But Sergei K. Krikalov, he is like a, an absolute Russian space legend, rocket scientist. He was also stuck on the International Space Station when the USSR, USSR collapsed. What about Ronald M. Sager? Yeah, well, I'm, uh, he invented the Mega Drive. Kenneth S. Reitler? Oh, you see, you're just bringing all these out. Yeah, Reitler was on his last on, on his last space flight on that particular one. Yeah, the, so that was that was a pretty full on crew, and not only that. During that mission, uh, apparently, Jan Davis's favourite science experiment on on all the missions. Apparently, she grew protein crystals, and you hear this a lot. Ah, yes, you talked about yeah, this. Yeah, so protein crystals is something they do in space because of the because of the zero gravity, because mm. of microgravity. Crystals grow perfectly. So if you can grow protein crystals, you can work out the structure of proteins because of the way that the, mm. the crystal grows perfectly. And this was the first time on the second mission, STS sixty, that she was able to grow insulin. Here she we was go. so excited about it, even though she was supposed to go to bed. And they were ground control. So you've got to go to bed now. And she goes, no, 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 I've got to finish this experiment. And grew the first insulin crystal, which is a massive breakthrough in... in uh, that is incredible. Yes, in making, you know, making drugs and things like that. So that's, you know... I guess unless they've got control of the lights, there's nothing they can do about getting them to go to bed early, is there? No, no. Oh, come, all... come and make me. Yeah, and like get someone from Grand, the Capcom to come upstairs. You're and not my real dad. <laughs> <laughs> good so, work, yeah. Jan. So well, so yeah, that was a pretty good one. And then and then she went up a third time on STS eighty five on August the seventh, nineteen ninety seven, as the payload commander, and worked a uh, a particular piece of equipment called the Christus Spass payload and uh, and use the Japanese manipulating robotic arm. Oh, that's genius. And then she was assigned uh, to NASA headquarters as the director of the Human Exploration and Development of Space, or HEADS as you know it, Matt. Mm -hmm. um, Independent Assurance Office for the Office of Safety and Mission Assurance. Yeah, and then 1999 goes over to Marshall Space Flight Centre as the director of Flight uh, Projects Directorate. And so that's like responsible for things like the International Space Station yes. and the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which, let's face it, both those two things are pretty cool. Let's face it. Uh, and then after the Columbia accident, so she's been at both the, the, the awful uh, shuttle accidents, um, she was 
named Head of Safety and Mission Assurance. So a pretty pretty major job. That is a big role. Uh, but then she's retired from NASA to work for Jacobs Engineering Group and currently works for Bastion Technologies, uh, and uh, including the Safety and Mission Assurance Support Contract Program Manager at the Marshall Space Flight Centre, like I said, as part of the... And, and she's currently working on SLS. So she really is an absolute legend. Well, I'm going to doff my cap. What I, no, I think she fully deserves Astronaut of the Week. 100%. Bow down. Yep. Do, do you know what her favourite food was in space, Jamie? Uh, crayfish sandwich. Do you know you are really, you are really close. You sure? Yeah. yeah, yeah I'm, I'm what was sure. it? Favourite thing was shrimp cocktail oh. with lots of Tabasco sauce because your, your, sen your sense of taste goes... And so she has lots of Tabasco sauce. I think that me and Jan must have a bit of the shining. Yes, no, absolutely. There we go. Talking of the shining, mm -hmm. uh, when this podcast comes out, it will be, well, almost Halloween. Just gone Halloween. What did you get up to? Uh, send us your costumes. Were you anything from my favourite space film? Um, Event Horizon. Event Horizon. Well, you know, because that is kind of a horror film set in space, right, Matt? It, it maybe is. someone, maybe someone did a costume like that. What do yeah, you I actually like Event Horizon. That's I think it's an under, it's an underrated. It's very film. underrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 better than that new Brad Pitt one. Haven't seen it yet. Actually, but very, I, similar. very similar. I have heard that. Yeah. Uh, yes, Jamie, did you see the news of the return of X thirty seven B? I didn't, but as you're saying it in David Bowie voice, I'm interested. Oh, Jamie, did you see the, did you return, see the return of, of uh, X-37B? Uh, it's Touched, the return touchdown of X-37B. Kennedy Space Center. The small, possibly evil baby child of the space shuttle returns after almost 780 days in space. A record of sorts. <laughs> More than a record of sorts. Hell yeah. 780 days in space flying around doing God knows what. The fifth and longest mission. But we covered the launch back in May 2017. <laughs> yeah, we did. And do you know why it was a special launch? Go on. Because it was on a Falcon 9 at the time. That was a massive coup for SpaceX. That's right. But not only that, really... It's a coup all round because if you think about it, that whole mission was almost completely reusable, uh, apart from the second stage of the Falcon and the fairings. So, quite a reusable space mission there. But what was it up to? Now, Jonathan, our favourite Twitter god, Jonathan McDowell. Yes, Mackers. He pointed out that uh, we should there should be some massive alarm bells here because the US may have severely damaged a treaty declaring satellite deployments so, which is the United Nations registration convention where you're supposed to tell everyone that you've put a satellite up and what orbit it's supposed to be in yes. etc which obviously is there to keep outer space not a complete mess debris field hellhole yeah. yeah so with this kind of behaviour and Elon Musk putting billions of satellites up, it's it's not looking good. So, yeah, Randy Walden, the Air Force Rapid Capabilities Officer Director, said that as well as carrying out a, a load of onboard experiments, the X-37B was a ride share for small sats, but none of these small sats have been registered. So, alarm bells, 
should be ringing. That is quite strange. No, now, no. and you did say that uh, this was the baby child of the space shuttle. So even though it looks like the space shuttle, mm. it's nowhere near as big. It's literally nowhere near as big. So you imagine the space shuttle had a cargo bay that would fit the Hubble telescope into it. Yeah. Almost exactly, in fact. Uh -huh. As if it was designed for the Hubble telescope stroke spy satellite. How queer. Mm. Uh, but no, this is more like the uh, size of an estate vehicle, like the mighty Rover 75 Tourer. You <laughs> <laughs> found a way to... Yeah, get in the Rover. Again, that's twice it's that appeared. Is in, twice in, in today. The, twice Just today. today. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And uh, yes, so those experiments were probably things like experimental sensor technology for the Air Force. Ooh. Um, yeah, so as the militarisation of space continues, Jamie, uh, this X-37B is definitely part of the equation, a quick response, nimble vehicle that's capable of going into all these different orbits and moving around and doing lots of different things. So, very interesting indeed. We, I kind of share a common thread, because I'm quite nimble. Yeah. I'm capable of multiple orbit positions. Yes, you. Yeah. Well, the X thirty seven B, like I said, is the evil baby child of the space shuttle, and in some ways, you're the, I'm the evil, evil baby, baby child, child of the interplanetary podcast. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Now I've got a question for you, yes. Matt. Are you sitting down? Yes, I'm sitting down. Okay, I'm going to throw something at you. How do you detect a wormhole? Well, how would you even go about detecting a wormhole? Listen, I've been thinking about it at night, and I, I needed to ask you that on today's show. Sorry to spring it on you. Well, do you know what? As, as luck would have it... Wait a minute. Have you, have you got a reply for me? I have. I have. As, Shh, as luck would shut have it. the door. Me old mate Dajan Stokovic and, oh, his, and yeah. his pal De Chang Dai of the University of Buffalo and the Yangzhou University mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in that order... What, they think they found a method? They, they think they found a method of detecting wormholes. Go so, on. No, no, I actually really like this. So if you have a wormhole, which is essentially a black hole that has a throat that opens up into another area of space-time, so instead of being crushed down to a singularity, yes. you go into the, into the, across the event horizon and then through the throat of the black hole, out into a new area of space-time, which, which is theoretically possible. I mean, just the fact that these things are theoretically possible make this whole thing tantalising, I think. Mm. So, what, so if you've got this black hole and you have, a, like, say, a large star orbiting the black hole, now, if on the other side, in this other bit area of space-time, you also have a large star orbiting that black hole, then maybe the gravitational per perpetrations will come through. There's nothing to stop them coming through. If you can travel through this black hole, then you know all this flux and, and gravitational waves should, would all come through as well. So the star on our side of, of, the, uh, of the black hole, of the wormhole, mm. will be nudged around ever so slightly by the gravity of the star on the other side. So... If you can find a star that uh, orbits a black hole in such a way, then maybe you can measure these perpetrations by something on the other side of mm. the black hole, which is precisely what you could do with a beautiful star called S2. So S2 is about 15 times bigger than the sun, and it orbits Sagittarius A star, which, as you know, 
is the giant supermassive black hole at the centre of our, our galaxy. galaxy. Yes. And S2 gets gets within about 120 AU. So that's it gets a hundred it gets close enough to be 120 times further away than the Earth is from the Sun. So yes. actually that's pretty close to something that is that is abs- I mean Sagittarius A star is ridiculously big for like four million times the mass of the sun so this is one like that's big very dense thing the the weird thing is that the event horizon of a star like this is only about six times bigger than the sun the diameter is only about Mm. six times that of the sun so it's actually quite small so that picture of a of a black hole makes you realise just how hard that is. You know? yeah. Because it's actually, it's not much bigger. In fact, it will only be a little bit bigger than S2 yeah. itself. So this black hole's tiny, and I always think, yeah, that's crazy. It goes all the way to the centre of the galaxy, and you're still looking for a needle in a haystack. So for people who don't know, Matt, can you, in one sentence, explain the difference between a black hole and a wormhole? Like, why would something potentially be able to travel through a wormhole but get stuck in the denseness of a black hole. I, this is all comes down to maths. This is all theoretical stuff. So if you've got Einstein's theory, it's, it's basically Einstein's theories. There's mathematical kind of resolutions for them mm. where you can do various solutions of his equations. And one of those solutions happens to be this like wormhole. Yeah. A worm, wormhole solution where it's like, yeah, it, it goes down and then opens back up again. So... People have theorised that somehow that that might join two areas of space time. I knew it was going to happen. But, but my head. the thing is, yeah, well, the thing is, no one knows what's at the centre of a black hole. I mean, these things were only theorised until very recently, where we think we can see black holes like Sagittarius A star and actually photograph things like black holes. We actually had a photo of a black hole this year, Jamie. Isn't that insane? It, it, it is actually without insane. any doubt my highlight uh, of the year so far. Yeah, no, it's that. Well, yeah, it may it may go down as one of the most important events ever. It's so annoying about that picture of the black hole as it just felt ever so disappointing because yeah, like, people are oh, is that it? It's like, but uh, no, but you need to you need it. to understand yeah how hard that is to get. Still, the most amount of likes I've ever got on my Instagram account, I think, when I wrote about that. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah you should have done it on the Interplanetary Podcast. One. Well, maybe I'll read it out to you. If you carry <laughs> on, I'll bring it up. Uh, so yes. The researchers, however, reckon that this S2, yes. because of the way that it orbits the Sagittarius A star, if Sagittarius A star not only is a supermassive black hole, but is indeed a wormhole at the centre of our own galaxy, yes. then, then equipment might be sensitive enough in the next couple of decades to be able to measure this movement in the star from what's happening on the other side in this other area of space-time. It's insane. I know. So it, it, it's like that is just ridiculous, isn't it? It's twisted uh, my melon, man. Yeah. So as the paper puts it, if the wormhole is traversable, then the flux, scalar, electromagnetic, or gravitational, can be conserved only in the totality of these two spaces, not individually in each separate space. So the the kind of movement has to go through. So this kind of movement has to be on both sides of the the wormhole. Sure. And that's probably a lot more likely than we think. Mm. Am I right in saying that? Uh, no. I, 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 it's, this is super speculative. When I say likely, I mean 
if you think of all the things that are, are in our universe, the chances of it being out there are pretty high, isn't it? Well, I suppose so. I suppose that the chances of there being a wormhole... I mean, the thing is, yeah, we, we thought that black holes were theoretical until we started spotting them. Exactly. Okay, you ready for my Instagram quote mm. on the black hole? History. 55 million years for the radio waves, shown here as light, to reach us. 65 billion times the mass of our sun. The supermassive black hole is so dense that it rips through the fabric of space and time. No light can escape once over the event horizon. Its pull is so strong that the gas and dust seen around the image here is heated to millions of degrees due to its speed. This image, the only one that's made possible by eight telescopes on Earth coming together to form data as though it were one telescope, the width of Earth, proves that Einstein's theory of general relativity was right. Was right. Yes, Albert. Light bent in a perfect loop around a black hole, meaning if you stood there, you'd be able to see the back of your own head, in theory. Katie Bauman got her bachelor degree in 2001 at MIT, and now she has led the creation of the first algorithm to show an image of a black hole. My biggest achievement after college was pressing a whole packet of Starburst into a ball and eating it in one, or I almost choked. Listen to Friday's Interplanetary Podcast, where an old man will weep to another old man about this. Update, I just realised that most black holes are a result of suns running out of fuel and collapsing in on itself, a star bursting. Starburst equals black holes. I won't be sleeping for a while. Oh. There we go. That was now, my post. Now, I'm glad you brought up Katie because, yeah, yeah she got an, a really vicious backlash to she people did, saying stuff like that. And she's actually been, she's come back and she, she's actually done quite a few interviews quite recently. They're yeah. very, what what an inspirational character, really. She mm. looks a lot younger than she, than she, she is. She really does, yeah. Uh, but she, but um, yeah, she was part of a massive team. The whole team were really accepting of the, the kind of break she made some pretty decent breakthroughs that yes. allowed it to become possible as did lots of other people yeah correct basically this kind of achievement is made by lots and lots and lots Absolutely. of people these yes. days you can't you can't no, do something not. that's why it's just. incredible I don't, it, and that's why it's very hard to explain to the public just how how amazing that picture is because it's so complicated. Yeah. It's, there's so many different areas of science brought in. And years there's, of work. Yeah, years of work. Lots of telescopes, lots of data, lots of maths, lots of sort of data manipulation, lots of lots of stuff in statistics, mm. lots of stuff in lots of multiple areas of, of of physics, science, maths, everything. So it's 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 quite a cool story, isn't it? But yeah, so get this, Jamie. This isn't even the first time that. Uh, uh, that wormhole detecting has been actually devised. What? Yeah, so there was a paper back in 95 by Kramer et al. that said that you could try and use the detection of negative energy. So you know gravitational lensing. Do I? Well, gravitational lensing, if a wormhole were to pass transit in front of a star, would mean you'd have a massive spike of light then a dip, and then a massive spike. So you could look out for this two spikes of light with a dip in it, and that might give you an indication that there's a wormhole there as well. Mm. So now we have two methods of potentially spotting wormholes and, uh, and giving them. So even if we find that Sagittarius A is a wormhole, 
it may not be trans tra uh, traversable. So don't expect any kind of rocket ships flying through from alien worlds just yet, Jamie. Okay, um, I'll calm down. But it's still a phenomena that... That, that gravitational effects could come from another space-time. So it's insanely interesting. And, of course, Sagittarius A star is interesting and very complicated anyway, but adding this into the story makes it just really amazing. God, it's just nuts, isn't it? Thinking, where would that gravitational effect have come from? Where? Where? I know. And it... Is it our universe? Is it another universe? Whoa. Yeah, Matt, I mean, as you know, I'm a big fan of the uh, bubble universe theory. Yeah. The theory that we are one of many bubbles, just like when a kettle boils and all the bubbles form on top of each yeah, other. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Like a hot soup. I wonder, I wonder if you could... Yeah, because you need all this negative energy to actually keep the throat of the wormhole open, so it may not be feasible. But it, if it is a bubble universe and it goes through to another universe then all the sort of constants in that universe might be completely different. So that if you were to transverse through it, your all your physical being might not even work the other side. I don't know, Jamie. We'll have to... Here's what I do know. Yes. Our death metal record with the, with the title track, Throat of a Wormhole, will be out before Christmas. Yes. Throat of a Wormhole! Throat of a Wormhole! Right, Jamie, from the absolutely epic to the more frivolous. And now for something completely different. And now for something completely different. The Samsung selfie space stunt. Did you see this? It's a lot of S's. I didn't you, see this, no. You didn't see this? No, you can fly your selfie into space as part of the Samsung competition. Oh, God. And Isn't there your... enough selfies on Earth? Yeah, so no, it's going to be displayed on the Samsung S10 5G. Our ethos is do what you can't, and the Samsung space selfie is just that. We continually break the boundaries of what is possible with innovation, and tonight's space, safe, space selfie launch is no different. Do what you can't. Do what that's, you can't. That's terrible. That's the ethos of Samsung. Oh. Hmm. I mean, Interesting. I understand it, but you can do it. Yeah, do what you can't, Jamie. Well, you are. You're doing the interplanetary podcast. Well, exactly. There's no way you could just, do that. I can't do Anyway, this. poor old Nancy Mumby Welk of Michigan. There's no one called Mumby yeah. Welk. Nancy Mumby Welk. I think Nancy is really the first name of Jan Davis as well. Is it? Yeah, by by sheer coincidence. Well, there we go. There we go. Um, yeah, so Nancy Mumby Welk of Michigan was startled when she found a satellite-looking device crashed on her farm. So this thing to make, <sighs> to look like a satellite had crashed on the farm. And it had carried Carter Delavine's selfie into space. And it was a high-altitude balloon with a mock satellite attached. And uh, apparently Samsung had planned to land it roundabout there and was sorry for any inconvenience. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite funny. But, uh, yeah, what, so what do you think about having your selfie in space, Jamie? Do you want it? Do you want Simply it? not interested. You're not interested in your selfie in space? Nah. No. Just think it's a load of rubbish. I just think we should be doing more important things in space. Like trying to detect wormholes. Yeah. Like sending me up to a wormhole. Like everyone's really scared of wormholes and then I'm like, I'll go. 
that's the kind of thing that we should be doing. Yeah, I think you could sort of drop into a wormhole, then find yourself floating in between the library of your old home, trying to communicate with your daughter. This is weird, Matt, especially because I don't have a daughter. Yeah, well, how do you know? Until oh. you've dropped into the wormhole, Jamie. Well, this is the kind of thing we should be doing, not sending selfies into space. Don't be ridiculous. So, yes, next week, there's a whole bunch of Artemis news, Jamie. We'll do that next week as part of our Artemis special. Yes, we will. I, I, saw, I saw Solaris yesterday, <gasps> Jamie. I managed to get how a lot of literally at the last second. Solaris at the theatre. At the theatre, Jamie. It was absolutely excellent. Great, uh, great bits of acting and great. The set's really good. So get yourself down. You uh, always did say got... that you were a big f fan of thespians. Yeah. Well, the one of the actors who's in it, who's who's filmed in it, he doesn't actually appear live on stage, but he's part of. He's actually part of the production. Yes. Is the guy off the Matrix? The guy that does the Mister Anderson. Anderson. Oh, is he? Yeah, yeah, he's oh, in it. Okay. Uh, yeah, so it's quite. That was quite cool. I only realised that this morning. I was like sitting there going, "Oh my god, it's him!" There we go. Anyway. Uh, yes, uh, good news for Europe as well. The engineers at the IABG test centre near Munich have completed the rigorous testing of ESA's solar orbiter spacecraft. Get in, Germany. Yes, so the spacecraft is going to get packed up now, stuck on an Antonov cargo plane, probably the one that I saw when I was in French Guiana. Uh, uh, and that's going to go... Uh, literally yesterday it will probably fly out to uh, Florida this time to be launched on an Atlas V from Cape Canaveral. When In... you said literally yesterday, that's definitely something that a teacher would say. When does my uh, report need to be in, sir? Literally yesterday. Yeah, you've yeah. said it before. Yeah, you, I can tell you obviously, yeah, but obviously you've heard it before yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yes, 10 instruments on board, Jamie, and it will capture the closest ever picture of the sun and uh, it will fly over the poles and make detailed observations of solar activity so uh, that's going to be absolutely awesome that is beautiful stuff but before we go to our brilliant interview um i just wanted to just have a, one little chat with you out there in in uh, listener world all the spod cats we had a little chat on discord jamie this week oh yeah and um it was about housing estates or sort of areas of your county that might have apollo themed road names uh, have you seen this so so i found one in devon so near me in devon in exeter yes they have like an armstrong road an aldrin way a collins street, i saw the collins street yeah yeah, yeah. You put it up online. So, yeah i put it up online and um and that's quite cool, isn't it? So that you've got these little sort of housing estates with all these like astronaut names. Kind of yeah. And and but to our horror, what we found is that some of the other people on the Discord were saying, well, we we, we found some near us as well. And it would have things like um Armstrong Way, Aldrin Street, and uh Apollo Way and things like that, or or <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, really? and it would miss yeah, it was like, oh yeah, let's just forget Collins then and just have something else. That's not cool. So yes, if you have one near you, let let us know. Let us know your uh, your own We should write a letter. And then and then if you're angry enough about them missing off Collins, then write a letter to your MP and say, What the deuce? I mean, it's a good time to write to your MP at the moment <laughs> in England, isn't it? You know? <laughs> Probably is. We're just yeah. about to have a general election, everyone. We are. So, Let's Jamie. see if we can get this absolute tit out of office. Whoa, Jamie, Jamie. That's very disrespectful. I don't care. 
You can edit it out. If I've you been want. on a train with Boris once, from Wandsworth Town. Did you tell him he was a tit? No, he was bumbling around. I don't. I, I'm not that rude, Jamie. I'm much more respectful. I'm not. He's a. Whoa, whoa. Yes. <laughs> right. Anyway, <laughs> you can put your train noise in there, uh, Jamie. Yes, we've got a brilliant interview. I love this interview. It's really different from the interviews that we normally do. Who did you interview? I interviewed uh, Gina M. Halabi, who is a research scientist and fellow at Wolfson College at the University of Cambridge, oh. an astrophysicist. And she also has a really, really cool website called She Speaks Science, which is at www.shespeaksscience.com which is... Check it out. Which, where, no, you have to check it it's out. It's an excellent website. Anyway, Jamie, would you like to hear this beautiful interview? Please roll the tape. Hey, Kute. I'm joined by Gina Halabi, who is an astrophysicist, a public speaker, and a storyteller. Uh, thanks very much for coming on. Hello. How are you, Gina? Thank you, Matt. I'm very good. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Yes, I'm just looking out at uh, the, the horrible weather, so I'm I'm glad to be indoors doing a podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so, first of all, uh, you've got a very interesting background. Um, can you tell me how you got into physics and astrophysics in particular, and 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 where you, what your journey's been to to get here? Um, well, it's been quite a bit unusual, I say, but um, but quite exciting. I grew up in a in a village in the mountains of Lebanon. It's called Baruch. I'm Lebanese. And as a kid, I have always been fascinated. I was always fascinated by physics, batteries, you know, that kind of thing. Um, at school, I was doing well in, in science in general, but at the towards the end of my, um, you know, high school, just uh, at one year in high school, I found physics very difficult. Um, I wasn't doing well in physics. And now in hindsight, I know what the problem was. It was a miscommunication with my teacher, who was a chemist by background. And so I couldn't feel really very inspired about physics. But then I changed schools. And one of my teachers there, my physics teacher in my new school, she, she was brilliant. And she realized that there's some potential there that wasn't being realized. So she decided to adopt me in a sense. And uh, she started helping me. And then my physics grade started to, to improve. And for me, that felt like a victory, you know, because it felt so hmm. tough. It felt so difficult. I had no idea what was wrong with me. And then I realized that with a little bit of help, I could do really well. So it was a challenge that I could overcome. And that sounded felt very exciting to me. And I thought, all right, that's what I'm going to do um, in college. So I did my uh, physics degree uh, as an undergrad. And then I uh, applied for a master's degree at one of the um, uh, very good universities in the region, which is called the American University of Beirut. So I was very lucky to get into that one because it quite opened very um, many opportunities for me. And then when I graduated with my master's degree, I had two options. One is to go off and teach, I had a very good job opportunity, or start a PhD. But my father, I remember back then, um, he told me that there's always a chance for me to go and teach or work, but very few chances like this will come uh, in my path eventually to, to start a PhD. And uh, mm -hmm. so 
that was the decision was made, but there was a problem that nobody had done a PhD in astrophysics before in Lebanon. So the program, the PhD program had been recent. And um, I had a supervisor who's an astrophysicist, a brilliant astrophysicist. He graduated from, from Europe. And uh, I decided, well, it's worth taking the plunge and see how it goes. And with his support and the support of the university and traveling to conferences a lot and meeting people, it worked out very well. And I graduated uh, with a PhD in astrophysics. And then I came to Cambridge as a postdoc. So you see, I, I, didn't have, I, I didn't have a plan to become an astrophysicist. I was interested in becoming a pilot in the Air Force or doing some sort of physics degree. Um, and, and I thought this, I, I mean, because I was interested in, 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 in physics in general, I started a master's degree in physics and then I got to know and learn about astrophysics and I was fascinated. So that's how I got into it. Yeah, that that's a really, really good story because it, it it's one that that I think needs to get told more often is that so, sometimes you can be struggling at a subject and and it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the subject that that you shouldn't yeah. be pursuing if it's the one that you're fascinated and 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 you love. I think that's it's a it's a it's a very interesting story and it, and it actually kind of goes into my next point mm -hmm. that uh, I was at the space conference and they were talking um that it was quite startling actually some of the um slides that they were showing when they were talking about the uh, this kind of stem being stem ambassadors essentially mm -hmm. and they were saying that uh, young children are really into science they love science and as they get a little bit older, they, they, you go, oh, is science important? They all say yes. You know, 80, 90% of them say yes, I love science. And then you say, who wants to become a scientist? And only sort of 20% of them do. And when you kind of drill down into why that is, it turns out it's because they think it's, the, it's, it's in the realm of clever people, that they don't see themselves as being clever clever in that in that sense and I, and I wonder if it's very similar to your story in the fact that you you think you're struggling and then really there's something else is do, do you do, do you understand that uh, problem do, did you feel like you had that problem and do you have any kind of ideas of how we kind of get over that hump because it seems to be one of those things that's holding particularly women back and ethnic minorities yeah. back from because they see it as a kind of white clever person's domain just purely on the fact that, you know we we think of Einstein and we think of Feynman mm. and they're they're white men so do, do you have a, <laughs> any ideas of how we get yeah. over that hump? It's a brilliant question Matt really brilliant question but let's unpack it a little bit there's many different components to it. Mm -hmm. First, you say that students have the impression that they have to be clever to do it, which puts them off. Well, first thing, yes, of course, we have, you have to be clever to do STEM subjects. You must be smart. You must be good at math, at analysis, at critical thinking. Otherwise, you stand really no chance in succeeding in STEM at all. So we must be promoting science as exciting as, as a driver for innovation, for growing the economy of our country, for developing our societies, but not easily, not as an easy subject. However, the problem arises, in my opinion, when the definition of clever gets warped. When clever becomes mm. uh, synonymous to white male, then that's a problem. When clever becomes synonymous to unfeminine, then that's a problem. 
And you see, I had a problem when I was growing up. I did feel that physics was 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 difficult. And I'm happy I mentioned this story because there is there a story of struggle. It's not easy. I had sleepless nights. I had I, I had great support from my parents because sometimes at exam times it was really stressful. It was incredibly stressful. So what we need to promote is the idea that, okay, it's thrilling, it's exciting, it has a ton of possibilities, but you cannot expect to just pop your feet over the, on, on, on the desk and say, okay, well, I could, of course, do STEM. You have to be a hard worker. And this is part of the excitement. This is part of what makes science so thrilling as a, as a, as a, as a problem-solving exercise. And then moving to the second part of your um, question, um, whether, or, or actually, you also asked whether, whether I had faced this problem. I think I was very um, lucky that within my family, my parents never thought that I couldn't do science because I was, I was, a, I was a female. They never gave me that mm. impression. And they always gave me the impression that, okay, if you choose to do this, it's not easy. And because you're doing it, we're very proud of you. So we will support you. So they never tried to underestimate how, how um, challenging this is. And they always made me feel uh, that they're proud of me for trying so hard and uh, trying to make it work. So this is the kind of background I come from. Um, I don't know whether this is an issue I talk about often. I don't know whether parents these these days try to cushion their children too much. They try to protect them. It's okay to feel vulnerable. It's okay to feel um, challenged. It's okay to stay up all night and study. It's okay to put all your heart and mind and being into working towards a degree. That's that's makes that builds character. It makes you who you are. Um, and so parenting is, of course, a very essential component of it. Um, and to the last part of the question, whether I have any idea how to overcome this problem, I think school teachers have um, an immensely important role to play. I think school teachers are overlooked in countries as major agents of change, really. Um, school mm -hmm. teachers have a massive role to identify talent and encourage this talent, whether in boys or in girls, but be, the, they are the gateway, you see, because when when school children, uh, students decide to, to self-select out of STEM, they are at school and school teachers would have a big impact on them. And that's what happened to me. My, my physics teacher realized that, hang on, there's something wrong there. That girl can do much better than this. So there is a problem. And she, she decided to help. She identified a certain talent. She worked on it with me and she saw a result. And as a result, I'm now an astrophysicist. So I think the importance is, I think the important, there's big, huge uh, necessity to emphasize that the path may not be easy, but it is not impossible. So they should, when we tell them this, they would be ready. And this uh, brings us to storytelling. I mean, what I do to encourage um, the next generation of, of, 
ch- students into STEM is with storytelling. Storytelling is very powerful because there's no story. There's always a struggle. There's always a failure. And there's always a hero. So um, I think by people just trying to highlight their struggles, um, we, we talk, we hear about brilliant scientists all the time. Rarely do we hear about their stories of struggle, uh, the failures they've been through and the obstacles they had to overcome. And I think by promoting these stories, um, we can perhaps um, start down that path. Yeah, I, 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 I think I, I couldn't agree with that. all you've said any more. I mean, I, I, I'm very passionate that that teachers, and obviously you had one teacher who was extraordinary and and pulled you out of, uh, well, essentially made you who you were yeah. really, and 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 that and, and teachers are super important. The the one the one thing that I that I always have. Um, personally is i think that maybe we over egg talent and we we sort of say to people oh you're talented at this and then the the rest of the children that are sitting there that that haven't had this talent uh pinned on them maybe think oh well there's no point me working hard in that area because i'm not talented in it and therefore i won't ever achieve in it and and i think that that's almost like one of the most dangerous mm. elements of even even mentioning the word talent. What do you mean by word talent? Well, I'll give you an example. It, I work at a music college, and we say have thirty students who come in, and they say they're all guitarists. Mm. Now, if you if you didn't if you if you didn't believe that through hard work they could get better, and through tuition they could get better, you may as well just have an audition at the very start and just choose the best five and say, well, you're the talented ones that the other 25 may as well go home. But that, and that's kind of how I feel that it happens right from, right from a very early age. I remember reading a very interesting article about how chess players, you, you can have this situation where if you were at school and you, you start playing chess, that the kids that are very good at chess, first of all, are the least likely to become chess masters later on. It's the ones that weren't so good and learnt through pure grit and determination to get better, start accelerating past those that found it easy at first. And so that you can, that that virtually the human brain is so plastic and so malleable that you can take virtually any any child and, and, and actually fulfill a potential that's actually enormous in virtually any child mm. would you <laughs> I don't... no I mean... no uh, look i don't disagree at all with you in fact mm-hmm. what i meant by talent is not just you give you give them a, a mathematical problem to solve and they're like do it uh, uh, you know straight away but mm. what i meant by yeah, talent yeah. is perhaps a certain curiosity, a certain willingness, willingness, a certain aptitude and excitement to 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 get into these topics, um, simply by asking questions, simply by probing deeper, by being curious. Really, you could see an inkling that this person, whether they're good at maths at that point, or at physics, or chemistry, or whatever. Whether they're good at it or not, you realize that there is potential for them to be very good at it because there is this desire, there is this passion. We may overuse the word passion, and I, I mean a genuine feel of interest in the topic rather yeah. than you know an indifference to the topic or to the subjects or to the you know 
the 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 the, the scientific process. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I just thought I'd 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 pry that one apart just a little bit because I, I totally mm-hmm. agree with 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 that analysis of it. I think that you that you need to be you need to have the interest in the topic to be able to 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 realize your potential. I I'm I'm always very worried that sometimes you put people off that sometimes people are put off and I've I've seen it in my own kind of uh, practice as a as a as a lecturer that that um it's quite easy to put people off because they do badly once and and it's like no but it, you've done badly this time but but you you can learn from that failure and if you're interested in this topic please just yeah. keep going because you'll 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 turn it round you will turn it round and you and and it will start all clicking into place and I just worry that sometimes people's interest you, I mean the the data was quite stark that the fact that they were all enjoying science but they didn't want to do it as a living because they, they they felt like they couldn't get they 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 were they didn't have that potential when clearly they all did. These were you know these were <laughs> a lot of the time these, these were the interviewing the sort of top top ten percent of the the children that were doing well and they thought they weren't going to be good enough mm-hmm. to do a an astrophysics yeah. degree. Um, and and it, and it, it, that was the thing that, that that I was trying to dig down and and, and try and work out why yeah, that was. Well, one thing that also helps is demystifying what a scientist does and what kind of life lives they lead, uh, professional lives, um, I think that would help as well. You know, like it, it, it answers to what you're, what you're saying about the, the struggles and whether they're fit for it or not. And if they imagine all sorts of things, like they, you think they're, like you said, they say, it's not a career for me. If they know really what kind of career this is, maybe they decide otherwise. Because it's 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 quite fun. It's quite thrilling. It's it's a different type of type of career from being a banker or a consultant or you know, um, it has its challenges and it certainly takes a lot of heart and a lot of passion to keep going. You know, because it's just solving problems. Um, and I think telling students really about that process. Um, Makes it clearer in their heads. I don't know. Maybe the one thing that I've always loved about maths and science, personally, uh, I, I went down the, the the path of being a musician for a long time. And when you when you write a song or or able to play a piece of music to a to a standard that you that you like, you get this rush of creativity, this kind of feeling of of huge achievement. And I used to get exactly that same rush of huge achievement when solving a quadratic equation or doing something like that. It's it but because you need that little spark of creativity and I, I i think that a lot of time people miss that science has got this huge connection to things like music and art because it it it's an extremely creative process and and i think that that should be something that that could be um could be said more often i think yes absolutely i agree with you uh, they're both um components they both include Creativity, they're both avatars of create, creation and creativity. So, yes, no, I agree. And art is helping bring science, uh, making more si- science more accessible to the public. And we could certainly talk about that as well. Well, you you kind of have a very arty uh, website that's a storytelling website. Uh, uh, can, you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, yes. So the website is called She Speaks Science. She speaks science at she speaks science.com. And mm-hmm. the reason I started She Speaks Science is that 
once I was at a at a UN conference, I was attending a conference and I was attending that conference because we were looking at ways to encourage women and girls into STEM fields and to the space sector. And I was very excited about that. And I thought, yes, I have so many ideas, so many solutions. Let's do this. And in that conference, there was an exhibition. And at the one of the exhibitors was the, uh, the German Space Agency. And they were giving out these do-it-yourself um, astronaut figures. It's a cardboard figure. You pop it out and you assemble a little astronaut. So I decided to take a couple of those uh, on my trip home to Lebanon when I was visiting. So I took a couple of those. I was with my family. I said, okay, here's this figure. Uh, I want you to assemble it into a little astronaut. So they did. And I said, okay, let's, let's give them names. And Matt, it's, it's incredible. They all gave their astronauts male names. Even my mother called her astronaut Jad, which is my brother's name. I was, I was, I was equally shocked and amused. There I was, an astrophysicist, um, but they couldn't see that, you know? They love me, they love me terribly, and they're, they, they, they love what I do, and they're so proud of it, and yet all their astronaut names were made. And this is why I created She Speaks Science. I realized that, hang on, let's not get into the, the, the blame game. Of course, I mean, there's bias and everything, but maybe I have a role myself to play. And I created She Speaks Science because I wanted to let them know more about what I do in a way they could understand and appreciate. I mean, my, my siblings are both scientists, uh, my brother is a chemist, my sister is a biologist, so we're very much a scientific family. But, you know, within my extended family, they wouldn't necessarily know exactly what I'm talking about when I say I'm an astrophysicist. So I thought I should be more vocal and more visible about what I do. Um, so I created She Speaks Science to give this agency and, and voice to us women in STEM to bring our stories to the light and to show the, the brilliant science that we do and above all, its social significance, the social significance of STEM research um, that women are doing all over the globe. So I started She Speaks Science because, because she has agency and she has a social duty. Um, she speaks science because she understands the danger of a one-sided narrative. She speaks science because she wants to claim that narrative and that experience. She speaks science because simply she dreams of a world when if she meets a random person on the street and asks them to close their eyes and imagine a scientist, they would imagine a young woman for a change. And I use stories as a vehicle to talk about science because stories engage, because we're, our brains are hooked on stories. So this makes stories so powerful. And the vessel through which these stories are told on the website is through Shahrazad. Shahrazad is the storyteller of 1001 Nights. Obviously, me being of an Oriental background, I grew up on the stories and the tales of 1001 Nights. And um, Matt, I'm so happy to see now the community growing. 
She Speaks Science started as a platform where I write about my own research. But now I, we have grown into a community. I have women scientists from all over the globe contributing from the UK, from the US, from Chile, from Jordan, from Iran, from Lebanon, from Iraq. Um, and, and it's been a thrilling journey. Um, and um, and it, it's, it's really great to see it grow and to see people, to see the stories resonating with people as well. It's yeah, I think that's a really, I think that's a really fabulous way of, of getting that message across. And I absolutely, yeah, that 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 whole idea of through storytelling, you you kind of normalise it so that it, it yeah, you take away that that initial thought of of oh yes, yeah, so and so's a. I mean, we it's the same with doctors, isn't it? When you think of a doctor, you always think of a man, and it's 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 like well, you know, and it, it you know, and it, and that's clearly a preposterous thought, but it's. It's hardwired in there, and, and, and but what what a what a brilliant thing that you've managed to get this off the ground, and it and it's and it's working its and it's working its magic, I suppose. Um, there was that you wrote an article for Room Magazine, which is a, a, a big European uh, space magazine that comes out monthly, and you uh, come up with an analogy between multi messenger astronomy and um, and this thing of having a more inclusive. Um, more inclusive with the people that do astrophysics and uh, are involved in space. Can you can you give me an example of where it's really obvious this this um, the benefits of having a more inclusive scientific community? Yes. So uh, um, the 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 room article came out recently um, in the hard print and. Uh, it will become available online in November, I think, so your listeners can can are able to check it out. I'd like to answer this by uh, a quote from the piece that we've written. I've co-authored this with Professor Sarah Langston, who is an assistant professor of space flight operations at Embry-Riddle in the United States. And we start by saying that outer space is recognized as an environment, a tool, an idea a kaleidoscope for viewing humanity from a diverse perspectives. Um, the idea of the article is how can astrophysics, astronomy, and space inspire us to be more inclusive? Of course, we can answer this question based on a huge amount of research on the benefit of diversity and diverse thinking in solving problems. There's a lot on that at the moment, whether through academic settings or business settings, or how um, diverse teams in businesses have high uh, get high uh, generate high revenue and all of that. But I wanted to look at it from a more um, abstract way, as an astrophysicist, how this has changed me and changed my perspective to view diversity, and what lessons can we learn from that, and. Until the beginning of the 20th century, effectively all we could learn about the universe was from a tiny little window of the electromagnetic spectrum, which is visible to our eye, the optical window. But if you observe a star cluster, for example, if you observe it in the optical, okay, you would see the hot stars, the bright stars, the massive stars. However, that is not the whole picture. 
because different celestial bodies reveal themselves at different wavelengths. And only when astronomers discovered how to collect this light outside the part of the electro electromagnetic spectrum that is visible to our, uh, to our eye, were we able to learn more about the universe. When we discovered infrared technology, for example, it revealed a most mm -hmm. electrifying view of the universe. Completely obscure objects were uncovered that we couldn't see before. And infrared, and we realized then that infrared, um, infrared bright objects were much more common than, than we thought and then what we predicted. And then we could see the stars that are too faint to emit visible light, or they're too heavily um, covered or obscured in cold gas uh, and dust to, for the visible light to escape them. So we, we were able then not to just see and observe the bright, objects, but also the more the faint and the retired ones. And in 2015, uh, the game went to a whole new level with multi-messenger astronomy, which is um, astronomy that is based on uh, observation, ob observa uh, astronomical observation from uh, different messengers or different signals. For example, if you're observing the solar system, you use certain uh, interplanetary probes. But if you look outside the solar system, you need different types of messengers to, to be able to, to learn about it. For example, gravitational waves, which we, 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 uh, we witnessed not so long ago. And when we opened up this new world of gravitational waves, this whole bandwidth increased and it provided complementary information that is fundamental to um, our understanding of the universe. So just like astronomy can now observe not only the, the loud and the obvious, but also the faint and the retired, also we need to tune in to be able to hear all human voices, the loud as well as the shy, because this only this way we can get a full idea of or the whole perspective or a wider perspective of how the world works and how we should move forward with our innovation. Um, it's essential. And in, in, the, in the article, we say that understanding the universe and or improving our understanding of the universe, this possibility emerged only when scientists became capable of listening to diverse cosmic messengers and tune into the unique individual wave bands. And I think this is one way as astrophysics and space can inspire us to become more diverse. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant analogy. I mean, it doesn't even seem counterintuitive, does it, to, to the, a more inclusive um, set of people that have different ways of thinking about problems and different, particularly culturally, I think, uh, like the, uh, thinking about problems in, in, in that the narrative of how you grew up and understood the world sometimes can really give you deep in, uh, deep insights on on. On how things it doesn't even seem counterintuitive. That that that's the thing that, that that's the thing that always is, uh, amazes me that that we're still in a situation which 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 isn't as good mm. as it could be. Yes, I agree. I agree. And we have a long way <laughs> to go. 
we have a very long to go way long way to go because this is embedded in our culture in our history i mean if you if you go to a, a library and you pick you pick one of the a book about scientists of the past it's it's full of white uh, men i mean this is because the 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 science was only accessible to men in the past and to be able to overcome the idea that this is a man's field because look at the history and all the great scientists that we know about to change that perception takes a long time and it takes um it it only it's not only for the system to change and for the people to change their minds it's about getting more stories out and having you know give the people the opportunity to listen to these stories and learn about them yeah and i guess particularly very young people so that they that they relate to it and think yeah i can do that yes absolutely absolutely yeah. and the more uh, diverse our role models are because you see um i always say this that it's not enough for um um uh, say for example an american scientist to 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 be visible because then lebanese kids will not will not identify with her maybe or um korean kids will not identify with her you know you, you need you need diversity of 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 role models because otherwise you may run into the the danger of alienating as well you'd say they'd say well you could do it i can't because you have different circumstances than mine so this is the importance also to highlight the diversity of role models so that the image of a scientist becomes destigmatized in a sense or we break the stereotype yeah and i and i guess your your background actually does give you a responsibility i suppose do you, do you feel that responsibility that oh, you that... absolutely yes so when i um, every time i'm in the media particularly in lebanon i get contacted by by lebanese students marveling at the possibility of of me having done an astrophysics degree in Lebanon because we don't have big telescopes and they associate astrophysics with big telescopes. And they say, how did you do it? Can I do it? How can I do it? What do you actually do? And this is when I realized that this is a, a I have a role, role model duty to play. There's no way around it because if I could do it, so can they, you know, because there's nothing special about me. I'm not a super genius of any sort. C- coming back to your definition <laughs> demystifying this i'm not a genius um i just worked hard i had the 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 right opportunities and i took them you know so just saying this like we're humans we just work hard we're really interested in in the topic we're passionate about it and if you are so can you so 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 can you do it as well yeah, I mean, just tapping into that. I mean, what what an honour that you have there to to sort of tap in that you're able to to facilitate tapping into a huge human resource that that currently sits dormant. Uh, it, it's it, it's it's really quite fascinating. Do you uh, do you have a story on your on your website that that you really one that you either wrote or one that one of your collaborators wrote that that's a favourite of yours? Um, I love them all. I love them all. Recently, um, a rocket scientist who is an Iraqi refugee living in the United States, she she fled. Uh, she fled the Iraq war uh, as a child. And now she's a she's a rocket scientist in the United States. Um, that was th- that is one of the stories that I really like um, that was contributed by uh, Diana Cindy. 
And the story is called Escaping a War, a War to Conquer the Skies. Um, another story I really like very much is um, by a filmmaker who wanted to be a scientist, but she was told that she didn't have the right character for it or the right gender. Uh, it's catching up with a girl left behind. So she, she, instead of becoming an astronaut, now she has become a filmmaker documenting the uh, brilliant role of women in, in driving forward the innovation and the exploration of space. Um, I, I, I love them all, really. And one of, one of the, 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 the articles that I like, um, Music of the Spheres, um mm. has is is i also like it a lot this is one this is one that I, that i wrote um yeah yeah no 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 absolutely well, you, you, well let's go to music of the spheres because it's one thing that's always fascinated me as because i'm i'm an acoustician by by background mm. that was that's what i did my degree in and 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 it's something i've never truly understood i've never had the chance to sit down with an astrophysicist and saying you know how, how does it work? I mean, I know that that sound doesn't particularly travel through space particularly well because <laughs> it's almost a vacuum. So, um, uh, when you talk about yeah that, that you're able to use sound and and uh, how does that how does that even work? So can you can you give us a a very quick overview of yeah. of of using sound and acoustics to 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 look at the, another way of uh, another messenger of of you know, digging into the cosmos. Very well put. Can I tell you a funny story about that first? Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I was in a social uh, event once and um, a lady I had just met came rushing to me and she said, look, I just talked to my a friend of mine. I told him that I met an astrophysicist and he is asking me to ask you about the music of the spheres. He says, he swears that stars affect us and they have music. Is it true? Is it true that stars affect us? And I was, and I said, well, look, I have a story you might be interested in reading, which is called Music of the Spheres, but it's not what you think. <laughs> it's not what you think. Um, so the, I mean, to us, stars are mute because their sounds cannot travel in the vacuum that separates us. Hmm. Stars are not quiet. You can think of them as giant musical instruments that are throbbing with sound waves. Because inside the star, there's high pressure. And as the high pressure in the star goes outward, it plows through the star, it compresses the gas as it propagates at the speed of sound. So these Pressure waves or these sound waves bounce inst inside these gaseous interiors, making stars quite noisy. But not only that, they make the star quiver or pulsate. Sometimes we say oscillate. And this is a swelling and contraction. It's like you imagine a baby sleeping and the, their belly, as they breathe, their belly goes up and down, yeah? <laughs> yeah. This, this swelling and contraction makes the surface of the star go al alternatively cooler and hotter. And so it, this causes periodic changes in the brightness of the star, which we can detect with our telescopes. So this translation of the internal structure and the internal dynamics of the stars into something that is observable at the surface, this is astroseismology. 
It's a branch of science that studies these pulsations and the pattern, um, the, the, the light patterns they create on their surfaces, but studying that to, um, to, to identify the internal structure or to probe the internal structure um, of, the, of the star internally. And by, by, by noticing these, these patterns, by observing them with telescopes and noticing them, we can just analyze these patterns with the, with the same mathematical techniques we use, for example, in geophysics to understand the, um, to probe the Earth's interior um, and study earthquakes, for example. Mm. Um, and these, these waves in the stars could be, could be pressure waves or could be acoustic waves. Uh, I mean, it could be pressure uh, or acoustic waves, like, like ringing a bell, for example, or they could also be uh, gravity waves, uh, waves like those in the, in, the, um, in the atmosphere or the ocean. And they're different because of the different forces that are involved uh, in them. So when we, when we observe a star, uh, we notice these patterns. And um, the way we infer this information about the internal structure is by two different uh, ways or uh, through two different obser observational data or the observational techniques. One is studying the changes in uh, velocity or spectroscopy, you know, just like this, uh, the baby's belly going outward and inward. Uh, mm -hmm. when, when the star surface does that, the light becomes Doppler shifted. You know, when the, the common example given here is how the pitch of the siren changes as it, moving to, it moves toward you and away from you. So this shift in light tells us about this motion on this stellar surface. The second observational technique um, is by observing the variation of light. This is photometry. So the photometry of the stellar flux or light, the, the variation in, in light. Um, and this is really studying the, the variation in the brightness at the stellar surface, which could tell us, um, which would tell us about the, the oscillations. And then we can learn so much about the interior of the star. It's amazing. By applying these mathematical models, we can know the composition, how much helium it has, how much this, this region is rich in hydrogen or everything else. We can know more about magnetic fields and all sorts of things. So wow, I mean, fascinating. Yeah, that that really is. It, it, it's incredible that the thing that that's blowing my mind is I, presumingly that the Doppler shift with the surface of the star expanding and contracting is mm -hmm. absolutely tiny. And and how on earth have we built uh, have we built instruments sensitive enough to see that color change and and, and and extract it from all the noise. Yes, yeah, it's incredible <laughs> the human achievement, isn't it? We've come so far, Matt. Our our instruments are incredibly, unimaginably accurate, and we can sense the minute differences in stellar flux. And it's all uh, going to be better uh, in the future. Our instruments are becoming more precise, more sensitive. And even the sky isn't the limit. 
Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming with uh, space telescopes make this this kind of observation easier, and the sort of very large telescopes that are being built around the world now, yeah, make the observation easier. So yeah, I, I, and well, and and like you said, gravitational waves are now coming onto, onto, um, onto the. On, on, as, as a new way of detecting things. So presumably it's a very exciting time to be in astronomy. It is, it is. And there are always new missions and new uh, satellites being, uh, telescopes being launched. And it's, it proves to be very exciting. Yeah, presu- presumably you, as, an, as an astrophysicist, you must be pretty excited that about James Webb or... Yeah, or... I mean, <laughs> it's taken forever to, uh, to become, a, you know, to be launched, um, but it's getting there. And to be honest, people working on, on exoplanets and studying, looking for extraterrestrial life is one of the most exciting uh, aspects in astronomy at the moment, one of, one of the sexy topics. So um, yeah. yeah, lots to look forward to. In fact, in fact, the exoplanet guys have just won a, a Nobel Prize, haven't they? True. Yeah, a Cambridge Cambridge-based uh, uh, scientist who uh, who won partly the the prize for discovering exoplanets as a PhD student. One, I've got one, three very quick questions that are almost okay. one-word answers. Um, okay. One that I, I I heard on another podcast, what I just thought was such a great question that I'm going to have to use it here is: if you could bring back a person from history back to life. Who would it be? Well, um, I would I would probably give a different answer if I'm asked this over a dinner party. But to keep with the theme <laughs> of, of the podcast, I would say it would be very interesting to bring back Arthur Eddington. Uh, Arthur Eddington is a is a British astronomer. He was based in Cambridge. Did you know that uh, he he uh, he he was in Cambridge? And um, I used to work at the Institute of Astronomy, and I used to hold stars group meetings in his study. So you can imagine what a rich wow. place to be in in Cambridge. So Arthur Eddington, in um, in 1926, I say he lamented in his book, uh, The Internal Constitution of the Stars, how we can see the stellar surface, but the deep stellar interiors are so beyond the reach of human exploration than any other region in the universe. So he imagined we can explore any region in the universe except the, 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 the interiors of stars uh, as, as telescopes probe, probe deeper and deeper. And uh, he would be thrilled, I think, if we bring him back to know that we can now listen to the interiors of stars through astroseismology that we talked about. So I think he'd be very happy to and I'm used to witness how far we have come since 1926. Oh, absolutely. He's yeah, he's he's come up quite a few times in the podcast recently because yeah, I'm I think sure. it was, I think I think well I think it was the 100th anniversary of the eclipse that he used to basically yeah. make Einstein famous, wasn't it? That was that was not too yeah. long ago. Yeah. Um and yeah, to see Einstein um, proved right again with the gravitational waves. But Matt, can I bring some other person as well from, from history? Yes, right? you I sure really can. I like to bring Cecilia Payne to collect her Nobel Prize for figuring out what stars are made of because it's, yeah, it's... very long overdue. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, we had her as a, as a space legend of the week. So I absolutely agree. What, what a legend. In fact, yeah, didn't she? Indeed. Who did she? She fell out. She fell out with one of the big 
big astronomer names, didn't she? She <laughs> anyway. <laughs> what? Her PhD supervisor. So, yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, and and eventually he had to eat his words and say, "No, no, you you were actually right." <laughs> yes. 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 That's right. uh, so, uh, what are you working on now? What's your What's your at the moment, uh, I'm also very. Uh, I'm also pursuing some stellar research, um, like literally stellar research. I'm not. Um, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> time, I'm still involved with a group at the Institute of Astronomy in the University of Cambridge. Uh, but I'm equally thrilled by. I'm thrilled by the cosmic and the earthly equally in equal measure. Uh, so at the moment. As, you know, as an extension to my um, uh, work in gender advocacy in STEM, I have now become a program director at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Um, I lead a program called Enterprise Women, which, um, which builds capacity and uh, tries to help women who have started businesses to keep to to have their, to um, help them make their businesses sustainable and to scale up and to grow into CEOs and leaders of their companies, um, and beside, of course, uh, I also work on she speaks science at the moment. Um, it's my labor of love. Um, I I have less and less time to write stories on She Speaks Science, unfortunately, because of my dif different many different responsibilities, and obviously because of the uh, new submissions we're having from contributing writers. So I edit those before uh, putting them on the website. But I will also so this takes a, a lot of my time as well, and it's growing. And um, uh, but I also would like to take this opportunity. Uh, to invite your listeners, Matt, uh, any female around the world who is doing brilliant, who is doing STEM research, which I'm sure would be brilliant, um, I'd love to hear from her, um, to encourage every woman doing STEM research to be vocal and visible about, on her, about her research, to contribute to She Speaks Science, um, all we ask for is a 700-word story, and we're, we, have, we, we help with the editing, and it's all free, obviously. And we're also recruiting team members, because this is all um, pro bono work, yes, yeah? all based on voluntary work, uh, me and as well as my team. And we can always uh, expand and grow our teams. And this is also an invitation to anybody who is interested in uh, helping with our mission and who believes in what we're doing. And also people who are interested in uh, hearing from us, uh, they could sign up to the newsletter, they could follow us on social media, they could spread the word, um, because we really want to, to, to have impact because we larger impact because we believe this is certainly uh, worth it absolutely absolutely what what a fantastic idea and i know we've got a lot of uh, female listeners all around the world and uh, they often interact on twitter and and instagram so i i i'm i'm, I'm very hopeful that we'll we'll have an interplanetary spodcat uh, writing in i can't wait <laughs> so um uh Thank you very much for eventually making this work. It's been really, really lovely to talk to you, and uh, yeah, I wish you wish you luck with all the with all those fantastic projects. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the listeners. 
And I hope they enjoyed this and they hope they got something out of it. And I hope they will go out and make a difference in their own way. You can get involved in space no matter who you are, whatever your background, I think that it's 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 really important. It's uh, or get involved in in science and 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 be an advocate somewhere and and just go out there and do it. Yes, I agree. I agree. That was amazing. No, do you know what? I I, I absolutely did really enjoy that interview. I might go back and listen to it a second time. Yes, I really, I genuinely really enjoyed that interview. It was it was really really cool. And I have to say, I'm going to reinforce the point here that no matter what your background, no matter who you think you are, if you love science, you can do science and just go out and do it. If and you there's want to so do many space. different things. It's not all oh. rocket science, yeah? And to reiterate, the website is www.shespeaksscience.com. Excellent. Jamie. Thank you, Gina. What are you doing this weekend? Um, I am going to see the new film... Uh, called Doctor Sleep, which apparently is the uh, one after The Shining. Although I'm a little bit sceptical, it's not going to be uh, that good. But I'll tell you next week. Oof. And uh, that's my only plans. What about you? I am going to... I, 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 oh, I'm doing a Halloween party. Oh, what are you going dressed as? I don't know yet. My... Well, now you're going to go as Event Horizon. Oh, yes, I'm going to go with, as... the, with, the, with the eyes all out. Yeah, which character in Event Horizon should I go as? What's his name? The guy who is the evil guy. Sam Neill? Yeah, Sam Neill. But you have to go with him as, as like an exploded <laughs> guy. Yeah. Can you tell me if I enjoyed this episode and I'm new to the uh, Interplanetary Podcast, where's the best website I can go to to find out about not only social media, but about merchandise, events, and how I too can join the Elite Patreon Club? Uh, you can join the Elite Patreon Club by going to www.interplanetary.org.uk and if you pledge at a, a great enough level, you can do things like send in your own interviews what? and send in your own blog posts. You mean people get to be part of the show? They can not only part, creators of the show oh so opening God. that up so if people want to get involved with that that is absolutely cool well we need to give some shout outs well, i am we? going to give some shout outs so ready here we go matt gilliland love matt what a what a, a what a chicago legend alden Varta. Varta is king what a norwegian legend love anthony peggs oh peggers uk then we have Christopher Andreasen. Springville. Yeah. That sounds American. Yeah, I think he's from America. We like you very much. The awesome and very well-informed, particularly on space architecture, Rob Annable. Get in there, Rob. Stas Shusha. Wow. Where from? The UK. Oh, hello, Stash. Is it Stash? Stas. Stas. Sorry. Hello, Stas. Shusha. I hope we pronounced that right. Uh, Patrick Haywood. Go on, Pat. Another UK. Another UK. James Goodwin. Oh, James, you are, you indeed are good. What a good win to have him on our side. Oh, he's probably heard that before, isn't he? Michael Westbrook from Redmond. Get in, Westers. And now we have our Uber patron here, who's skipped up a level from Skylon to Ace. Upgraded. Yeah. Justin Roberts. Justin, we want to extend... Our love 
Absolutely. Been, he's been in contact for a very long time. Really, really cool. And Darren Fuchs, awesome. Get in there. Thank you, mate. We have Sven Norhaus from Germany. Oh, Sven, Sven, yes. And of course, the wonderful Julio Aplea. Literally my favourite person in the space world. I said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, it. you did say it, didn't you? From Argentina, currently in France. Currently in France. We have Karel Sim. Oh, Karel Sim is in, wicked. From Estonia. Yeah. We have John Bennock. Big John. Big John. John Bennock. Another cool cat. Thank you, John. What Let us know, John, if you've been to the steps of The Exorcist and I in actually... Georgetown. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nice. And then we have the glorious, what a Mr. Legend himself, Dr. Bob Hodges. Dr. Bob. What, what, what superlatives <laughs> are left in the world? <laughs> there aren't many. A lot of the people that we've just done the rundown on there are fantastic contributors to the, to the Discord. Uh, come and join in. Absolutely love it. Well, they? thank you, everyone. And we, we, we know we harp on about it every week, but we mean it when we say, without you contributing to the show, we wouldn't be here. Absolutely. So thank you so much. And if you want to go over to iTunes and give us a nice five-star review, your word's not ours, then that would be great <laughs> because it means that other people get a chance to find the podcast. Absolutely. Let's let's wrap this baby up, Jamie. Let's stitch it. Bye bye, Spod Cats, and do enjoy the weekend. And remember, if you're ever flying around a wormhole, pop in. Say hi. Oh. My God, what happened to your eyes? Where we're going, we won't need eyes to see. What are you talking about? I created the event horizon to reach the stars, but she's gone much, much further than that. She tore a hole in our universe, a gateway to another dimension. A dimension of pure chaos, pure evil. When she crossed over, she was just a ship. But when she came back, she was alive. Look at her mirror. Isn't she, she beautiful? Your beautiful ship. Kill its crew, Doctor. Well, now she has another crew. Now she has us.